Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. These chats are fun, informative, and hopefully always interesting. In today's episode, I speak with Bala McAllen, founder of Complete Works. I ask Bala how you teach someone to be a good storyteller, and he shares his tips for improving visitor experience through performance. If you like what you hear, subscribe on all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's lovely to have you on. You're very welcome, Kelly. Nice to be here. I am going to ask you a few icebreaker questions because this is how we start every interview. We've met before, though. I don't feel like we need to break the ice, but everyone loves these. So let's go ahead. We're going to talk about storytelling and we're going to talk about visitor experience. I want to know what your favourite story is. Um I'm going to go with, I think my favourite story of all time is The Diamond as Big as the Ritz by um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, which is a short story that he wrote about, um, it's, I guess, slightly science fiction, but within the real world. And there's a family who for generations live on a mountain and the mountain is a diamond but they have to control the flow of diamonds into society. Otherwise, the price of diamonds would plummet and they wouldn't be as rich. So they're sort of like a secret Bond villain family <laughs> live on this diamond mountain and have sort of like servants who speak their own language. And one of the children goes off to college and meets the, the sort of protagonist of, of, of the story and invites him to come uh, to, to, to the mountain. But then I, then I won't give away what, what happens next, but it's, it's bonkers and fascinating and exciting and innovative. And yep. Great. I've never read that either. So I'm going to add that to my list. All right. In terms of customer service, what has been your best ever customer service experience? So I think in recent times, the one that instantly pops into my mind is a client. So I will share that, but I'll also potentially try, try and think of another one as well. So it doesn't just seem like I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, doing that. Uh, but, but yeah, so some of the greatest customer experience I've received in recent times is at the McAllen Distillery up in Speyside, which is just second to none it, it is when you talk about sort of a five-star customer experience that that phrase is used a lot and people talk about world-class uh customer visitor guest whichever word you, you want to use experiences and they are truly nailing it sort of across the board in, in so many different ways um so that they their team are fantastic that they've done a great job of investing in them making them feel important supporting them and it's it you can just tell because it's so authentically good all the people you interact with truly want to be there are truly passionate about McAllen and its history and there's so many good stories one of the last times I was up there I I was given a tour by um uh one of the tour guides and they're in a unique position that not every every organisation could do this. But when she was giving us the tour, we were in a section that had, it wasn't a museum, but it had a case that's sort of like a museum case. And there, there was an old hip flask in there. And, and she was 
and it was a, a, a lady called Lindsay, and she's I would imagine 25, so you know, quite young in the world of whiskey. And then that was her grandfather's hip flask. And she started telling us about how she's like third generation on the estate and all this, and you're just pulled in and you, you it, it's it's just it was just such a powerful emotive story and such a connection with her and and she's not unique you, you when you spend time there meet other people there's so many people who have a family connection to the place but but it isn't just that there's so many people who have emigrated from other parts of the world to come and work there and are equally as passionate and um, the, the whiskey is delicious and and their food is sublime um wow. they, they do a incredible um tasting meal where that that the chef parvel creates and it's it, it certainly doesn't stay the same it's all local ingredients a lot of it's come from the spay on their estate and you'll have fascinating adaptations of trout and uh salmon and, and local beef and things all paired with with wines and whiskies and and, and it's yeah and it, it's truly magnificent um, you've sold it I mean that if that isn't the power of storytelling I don't know what is there's there's the example that we've all been we've all been listening for today <laughs> all right final icebreaker I want to know what is your guilty food pleasure I Turkish delight there you go oh okay yeah no I I, I love Turkish delights I I, I I I my my palate I guess I've got quite a Victorian palate or something because I I, I don't like uh a lot of modern um, sweets, but like I love Turkish light. I love marzipan. Um, if so, so it's really convenient if there's like a box of chocolates because most people will. Everybody goes in for certain truffles or different ones, and and, and the Turkish delight or the marzipan one is sort, sort of often left till till last. But I'll I'll definitely go for those or in a box of celebrations, which I don't particularly like, but if I'm going to have one of those, I don't, I, I want the bounty. I, I don't want the others. That what, are... what, Why has bounty got such a bad name? It is such a superior chocolate when it comes to celebrations. I don't understand this. It's delicious. Coconut, you know, co- coconut's delicious. So yeah, I, I like those, those ones, but yeah, I get my real guilty pleasure is, is burgers. I had a burger last night. I, I eat uh, too many burgers. <laughs> It's just sort of the perfect meal, you know. It's so compact, all in one. Just a big meat sandwich with lots of cheese, lots of pickles, lots of things in it. And, and you know, I'm happy with one of those. Okay. All right. And we're at unpopular opinion time. So what have you got for us? Um, I suppose my unpopular opinion is I I don't really like technology. <laughs> and you know, I guess a lot of people say that, but I think I genuinely like like don't. And uh you know, obviously I'm aware of how much technology has helped the world in so many ways, and we live longer and we can communicate with people who we wouldn't be able to have connections with if, if, if we didn't have technology but yeah I I find it um annoying so <laughs> I don't like computers I don't like phones I keep a paper diary and a paper notebook which everybody who works with me finds incredibly frustrating because I can't share mm-hmm. I, can't, I mean I, I can tell them what I'm doing next Tuesday if they ask but you know I can't they, they can't sort of see it on a calendar invite um 
this I, I struggled getting on this um the, the, this zoom call today i mean when you asked me to be on this i said yeah but let's can we do it in person <laughs> I went, and i said no that's a real pain in the ass <laughs> okay there's you know a huge insult and indication <laughs> didn't really want to chat to me and i was like yeah you know it's a lovely sunny day we, we, we could be strolling through, through, through some woodland you know having a chat or you know doing something and you could you could, could have invited your listeners to come as well. we could have had a picnic you know, other, you know. So this will come this will come I just needed more time to organize it oh it will happen yeah. all right okay look we all need technology in our lives but I know that this is quite stressful for you so um, but thank you I, I appreciate that you've you've given this a go today for me do you think now I want to talk about your background a little bit because it is we've talked about this before and it is super fascinating how you've gone from being a classically trained actor to working with visitor attractions so tell us about your background so tell us how you've you've gone from from being a classically trained actor to running complete works so yes so so I, I, I was an actor not particularly successfully but you know successful enough to do it for sort of five years pay the bills not Hollywood or Royal Shakespeare Company, which is where I wanted to be. Lots, lots of, um, you know, pantomime and theatre and education. And, you know, I did a couple of little bits on TV, which was fun, but but no, nothing significant. So I, I enjoyed the lifestyle of being an actor and the sort of fun and experience of it. And then just the reality is I met my now wife and she became more important to me than you know the lifestyle of you, 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 you know basically not having to work that much doing some shows and getting the lie-in in the morning which was great fun you know in in, in my 20s um but yes yeah, so, so so decided I went decided I wanted and needed something with sort of a bit more stability um a bit more you know of, of a stable um future progression so so yeah started looking and thinking about uh, what else I might do so I decided to become a cartoonist because that's really stable as well and the obvious progression from, from being a, an actor so so that was that was fun <laughs> that didn't work out <laughs> you know <laughs> But actually, it, it did give me some, some really good experience because I, I, I launched, I started a greeting cards company. I, I did wow. uh, this this line of, uh, it was called of, of, of Mice and Mice. And it was um, this mouse in like human connect, in human situations. But but what it, what it did is it sort of taught me about sales and starting a business design the cards and you know had, had a made and you know, website and branding and everything i then sold them uh, on a portobello market in west london so i had a stall and sold them there sold you know and they sold so i was like great that works i then had to get them in shops and then so i had to go through the process which was really good for like confidence building in terms of being you know a business person and, and, and sales just having to like book appointments with greeting cards try and convince them to see you and then come in and pitch your portfolio and get them to stock and supply you and so I, I did that for like a year or so so I got 10 London stockists which for ages I really wanted I was like 10 London stockists that's like a landmark so I got there and did it and then realized my cards because they were printed on recyclable material with vegetable ink and recyclable and everything cost like 50p to 
make and I could sell them for a pound to a shop. <laughs> I, have, I have 10 shops selling me and I make about 30 pounds. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. Going to give me uh, the lifestyle I, I crave, but uh you know, so, but it was a good experience. So, so then I went back to uh, thinking really about my skill set and, you know, what I'd done as an actor and the training I, I'd had to be an actor. So I did. So I worked freelance for, 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 for a number of years for a number of companies. So we're doing shows again and writing shows, but then working with uh, visitor, visitor attractions. So, so I did projects with the Science Museum and, and London Zoo sort of direct writing shows for them or tweaking the scripts of, you know, the bubble show and rocket to bullet show at science museum and like animal talks at London zoo. And it was fun. And I, and I enjoyed that. Um, and so started doing more of that and then start, started a business doing that, my, my, my business, which I started um, in 2012, but the original company, which we, we still do is training but we thought that the majority of our training work would be, you know, the animal team, you know, upskilling them to deliver a better gorilla talk or, you know, the workshop team that that's in the education team that that, that museums have. So we, we did that and we still do some of that. But but quite quickly, we saw that people would just ask us, oh, actually, can you apply those skills to the front of house team? Because you're making the animal team better communicators. We our front of house teams to be better communicators and then ultimately we want them to be better communicators to in, to increase commerciality and that's where our business really took off for obvious reasons if we're working to help people make more money we get more work so focusing on using the skills of performance communication improvisation stagecraft to to in the environments of visitor attractions to upsell membership or um increase on-site giving visitor donations or special exhibitions is a huge benefit to the organization and and we are skilled and suited to do that so so that so we started doing that and then the real unplanned success story of our business is then our staffing agency Um, so we started the business as training and consultancy but then whilst I was working at um, Kew Gardens um, we'd only been going for about this this be I think about 2013 um, and I was um, doing communications training for their membership team and I'd mystery shopped them a few times to sort of see the experience through the eyes of their guests. And they had some membership promoters um, at the front and they were they had, like sitting on stools behind a desk. And it said, you know, talk to me about membership. And I was looking at it and they're like, OK. And if people walked up to them, they would tell them about the membership but there was no proactivity in it at all. And so I'd put in the report, I was like, I mean, it looks like you've got a real opportunity to increase um, the membership sales there. I presumed they were, I was mystery shopping, I presumed they were Q-Star. They then told me that actually they were from a promotional agency that they used book to promote the membership. And I said, well, well, they don't promote it. There's no proactive sales here it's just reactive they, they sell the membership and it's testament to the strength of q gardens offer that without any proactive sales they still have, like the, the results were good that they were they were getting a decent return on investment um 
from this company, but there was nothing proactive. So I was like, well, actually, I know loads of actors. Let, let us have a go and let's see what we can do. So, so we trialed a summer of doing it and, you know, increased the, the sales exponentially. And Q were really happy and, you know, we, we, we were really happy and said, well, great, let, let us now do that for you. Um, and yet, yeah, so our staffing agency is actors between roles, predominantly working at visitor attractions and predominantly doing commercial tasks like membership sales or, or visitor donations. And it's, yeah, it's such a great model. And it's, you know, it, obviously it's, it was my idea, but it was, an, I, I didn't really take credit for it. It was sort of like one of these lovely accidental things where we saw it, we tried it, but the model works so well. And we love, we love in, in the company, um, myself and, and, and my employees supporting actors um, because a bunch of us are ex, are ex actors in, 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 in my company. So, so we like having that connection and supporting them. And then the, the actors we also like that we support actors and we do it by supporting the arts, which is a lovely little circle of artists supporting the arts in their um, in their job to pay the bills. And because we're ex-actors, we've managed to you know, create an agency that, that works really well for actors. We're only as good as our people on the staffing business. And there are lots of... Um, promotional agencies and staffing agencies out there we're, we're quite niche and um we think very good for we're very good for our people which makes them very good for for us as we know the trials and tribulations of being a, a jobbing actor whether it's you know london edinburgh wherever it's it's a tough job and you need to pay your rent and you need flexibility so we, we give our staff 100% flexibility so they aren't committed to a job if they get an audition or acting. Whereas if they're working in a bar or working somewhere else, regularly they say, oh, I've got an audition tomorrow. And regularly they're told, well, if you don't come tomorrow, you're going to lose your job. So then they either turn up to work to, because they need that job but then they're in a bad mood. So they're not going to deliver great experiences or service for whatever they're doing, or they just don't come or they mysteriously, their grandmother gets sick or you know, something. So we, we know that's going to happen. So, so we just absolutely, if, you, if you're not working, if you just te- give us as much notice as you can, but if you're not working, just tell us, which means we, we have to restaff all the time. But it means that our staff, are happy to be there and then appreciative that um, that we give them that flexibility and we pay them well. You know, it, it's a it's a premium product um, and rightly so. We don't do any commission, which lots of our clients always ask. Lots of other agencies do. When I was an actor, I did loads of sales jobs, you know, telesales and charity fundraising and all sorts, and it was often commission based and. It's again, it's your highs and lows. So, you know, if it's a sunny day and you're, you know, doing charity fundraising or membership at a visitor attraction, which is what I do, I didn't do myself, then yeah, you're going to sell loads and it's fantastic. But if it's a rainy day, you're not. So, and my my sort of experience of seeing people do it in other agencies and businesses when I did it was then on the rainy, rainy days, nobody tries. Because everybody knows oh, we're just going to get our per diem or something. There's no, we're not going to hit commission. So everybody just sits back because there's no point. Whereas for us, 
we charge fair, we pay fair, and our team appreciate that. And the attraction can budget accordingly. It's not, you know, in, in terms of our, our, our billing, and as can the staff. And they know I will be able to pay my rent if I do those shifts, or it might be that one might and that one not. And that emotional journey yeah. means that they're not, we, we want them to be happy that they're there with the flexibility. We want them to be happy that they're being paid well. And then we pay them quickly as well, which a lot, lot of agencies don't because because they're freelancers and they're used to being paid six weeks, two months after you know putting in an invoice. So we pay our freelancers every other Friday. It used to be every Friday pre-pandemic. We, 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 we dropped it to, to uh, every other Friday since, since the pandemic. Um, but that's still, you know, much better than a lot of companies. It means we are often, in effect, running a bank for our staff because our clients don't pay separate. Yeah, chasing in invoices two months, three months, six months down the line. So you know, but we, we want for our we get the results that we do with our staff because they are happy well played paid have flexibility and and know they're going to get paid next friday and, and this is wonderful i mean you've gone to have created an organization a create a, a business that can deliver so brilliantly for for both of the sectors you know for both the actors that work for you and the attractions that you work for that's a huge achievement something to be immensely proud about i loved some of the things that you talked about there because I've had this conversation before. I think it was at, it was actually with Carly Strawn, a mutual friend of ours, about visitor experience in attractions and about how it does um, it does attract a lot of people from the theatrical world because you are on show, aren't you? When somebody comes to your attraction, you want that experience to be as as best you know the best it possibly can be for them. And so, essentially, you are performing for them to make that happen. Yeah. So it's amazing that you can bring people in that have that background to be able to do it. What I find fascinating is that you would never know either. So if I came along to the attraction, I would be, if I spoke to the membership people or I spoke to, you know, the donations people, whoever, whoever it is, I wouldn't know that those people didn't work there. You've, you've, you integrate them so seamlessly in that organization that you would just think that they were there every single day. Absolutely. And that's what we always uh, tell our clients as well with the staffing uh, offer that, that we do is we want them in the same uniforms as the rest of the team we don't want them to look like a promotional team or this is the you know special you know team that does something different because for, for the visitor experience you know and you know this is something you know you see reg- regularly um where obviously in a large organization there's lots of departments lots of roles and responsibilities but to the visitor, anyone wearing a badge or a lanyard or a green fleece or whatever it is represents the organisation. The visitor will just go to the most convenient person to ask a question or, or, or a query. And you do you know, sometimes see in an organisation, you know, that isn't, um, you know, delivering great experiences that people work in silos and, oh, no, but that, that's not my department. You need to and speak to someone else and it's people hate getting passed around they just want to be you know deal with the person there and and, and get what, what, what whatever service it is that they need at that time yeah so for our guys we want them in the uniforms so that they integrate also because it's you know we we're doing sales and we want to do it in a somewhat sneaky way <laughs> with because and it's it's not malicious by, by any means but 
it's that experience of you know if you're walking down a high street and you clock someone up ahead with a clipboard or an iPad sort of smiling at you and trying to make eye contact. <laughs> Run! <laughs> Can I cross? Am I going to brave this fast-moving traffic to get to the other side of the street or to, to avoid this person who's going to either, you know, to ask me questions on the survey or try and sell me something or get me to sign up something? And, and that, that's a sort of natural reaction that we have. So for our teams, we want them integrated. And then we always lead with service. We never come straight in with sales um, because it, it's it's off-putting. And it, can, it, it can be jarring. People, where, wherever you are in the attraction, whether it's entrance, entrance, entrance exit or mid-experience, mid if you're suddenly like interrupted with, with sales, it can take you back. So our team always trained and we have different processes at different at di- different sites, different organisations. Can we can we like share an example of this? Because this was one of my questions about what we're talking about, because there's two very distinct tr- trains here of what you do, but they intertwine, don't they? So it is it's very much about kind of storytelling for sales, mm-hmm. but also visitor experience as well. And that's this is the bit where they kind of cross over You've got some absolutely incredible case studies on your on your website about the, the results that you delivered. I mean, I mean, I've got here increased donations at the National Gallery by between 300 and 400 percent. Like that's phenomenal. Yeah. How how do you do that? How do you lead with the experience? What do you teach people to do? Yeah, so, so that one specifically was all about improving the welcome experience at the National Gallery, which led to those um, results. So that was that was a great project. Um, yeah, so that started 2016, 2017, something like that. So originally we, we won a tender um, to do a research trial. And the National Gallery was great um, because often we'll do a project like this and, and we just get given like a week or, you, you know, a day even. And it's hard to really work everything out in such a short period of time but here we say so we had four months and the, the tender was um put, put out to see if you could increase on-site visitor donations with a team who self-funded themselves through increased donations in, made additional income on top and did not affect the um visitor experience uh, the national gallery that the director gabrielli was absolutely resolute that he didn't want suddenly you know the the experience to to, to be altered and everybody felt that they're being you know shaken down for, for cash as as they kept came through, through one of the entrances and then in that uh, tender, we, we, we won the tender and then we were given um, six um, questions to answer over a four month period. It'll be who will donate? Where will they donate? What other commerciality can you connect with, with donations, um, times, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, but yeah, so we had four months So we had four people seven days a week for four months with a um, tablet literally velcroed to their hand and we we changed the pattern every two weeks so every so we do something for two weeks look at the data record it and then tweak it and change it so we tried different scripts different asks, different locations uh, and after every interaction they'd record on the tablet 
uh, we split um, the visitors into, I think, six different sort of broad demographics. So they click the, the sort of type of visitor, whether they donated, if they did donate the amount and where they were and what time. And we, we had something like a I can't remember exactly 140,000 uh, interactions over the period of time. So it was a huge amount of data. And so we, we had the time and opportunity to get it incredibly slick. And we found that there were really surprising, subtle changes and differences that would have dramatic effect on income, the positioning of boxes the relationship of the positioning of boxes to where security is or ticket desks or experiences, again, has um, dramatic uh, effect. I mean, security uh, in in particular um, and in a simple, so it was fascinating. So so obviously National Gallery is on Trafalgar Square, so you absolutely need security. You, you absolutely need, need that. But the security does affect the visitor experience because you're coming into an exquisite, arguably the world's greatest collection of art. And, you know, you're getting, you know, going through airport style, beepy things, having bags searched, which it isn't, it's necessary, but it's not a pleasant visitor experience to have that. So if that is happening and then immediately after that, you have a welcome-led um, donation ask. You'll get some, but you won't get as many as if you don't have that. You can still have that, but simply by distancing it from that, and distancing it can literally be a few meters and a door. So we moved security from uh, from inside the entrance to outside the entrance, and they have and the security guards, you know, they're a bit like. <laughs> wear a coat it's all right <laughs> we weren't always popular with <laughs> with the things that we did but yeah by putting the, the security in front outside of the building but there's at both uh, portico and sainsbury and uh, entrances that, that they're covered um so you could put the security there the people people are searched they then walk through the doors and it's like that's the start yes that's ah so they're they then disassociate with, they then walk in and then they see a friendly, welcoming person who welcomes them to the National Gallery. And, oh, they've they've now forgotten about the bag searching, forgotten that, that you know, that they had to, you know, shove their keys back in, in, in their bag or whatever it is. They're now in the building. There's a, an instant sort of release of tension from that. And then they meet a, a friendly, welcoming person um, and their propensity to don- donate instantly increases. Wow. And the, the training for the team there was relatively um, straightforward. We, we had 17 frequently asked questions that in such a high percentage can create a great welcome uh, experience. Most people, it's, you know, the sunflowers, whistle jacket, where's the cafe, where's the toilet, what time do you close? That sort of level of in, in, information can create a brilliant uh, welcome experience for most people. Of course, there's occasionally somebody looking for a very particular, more obscure work of art, and that's different. And the team will then have to, you know, go, go to the very efficient in-house team who, who has a broader knowledge of, of the collection. 
but simply by welcoming people, answering a frequently asked question or two, and then informing people that the National Gallery is a charity. And if you can donate, please do. Um, donations, you know, skyrocketed. And we kept it consistently between three to four hundred percent for three years. So after the, the four month tender, we, we, we then won a, a, a longer con- a, t- a two year contract to, to, to do it. Well, there was an, an extension up to a year. Then we won a two year contract after that to, to, to do it. So we kept it for three years at, at, at that level. That is and, phenomenal. That's phenomenal, isn't it? Because it's because now it's not just about the visitor experience, not just about sales training. It's about location. It's about understanding how your guests enter your attraction. There's so much involved in it. It's that's fascinating. Absolutely, it, it's core to, to what what we do and our background. And we predominantly look at three things, uh, which are from the world of theatre, and that's storytelling, stagecraft, and improvisation. Storytelling being your communications, the, the, the words you're delivering, but not just with your verbally with your mouth, but with your body and your tone of voice. And we, we want whatever whatever you're communicating for it to be articulate and for it to not just be heard, but to be understood. So we look at the nuances of of, of that and little changes of script can can have big differences in a donation ask or in a membership pitch. Uh, And then, yeah, we look at stagecraft. If you're producing a play, of course, you, you have a tech rehearsal or several tech rehearsals and you block the play so that everybody knows exactly where they're going to be standing so that the technical team, the lighting designer plans it so that they make sure that, you know, if it's a a touchy moment in the play or a dramatic point that the lights are just right and the audience can, can, can not only hear the words, but they can see what they're supposed to see. And we look at that in the environments of visitor attractions, looking at where donation boxes are placed, membership asked, are they front and centre? Should they be? And if they're, and we'll often see them tucked away in dusty corners and people say, oh, we, nobody really ever donates. It's like, well, yeah, because that so many people don't notice it or there's nobody interacting with it. So we look at the stagecraft and then we look at improvisation um, because, you know, no two days are the same in, in a visitor attraction and, and the ability to be able to think and adapt quickly on your feet is an incredibly useful skill. And then matched with that in the improvisation that there's a principle, the yes and principle. And when you're doing a scene, um, you don't block the scene. You don't simply say no, because if you do, it ends the scene. So, you know, if if I was doing a scene with you and you walked in and said, oh, hi, I've got a, a delivery. Are you John? If I just say no, the scene ends where I need to say, yes, I'm John. I've been waiting for my delivery. Please give it. You drive. So yes, and drives the action forward. And we want that mindset within um, a, a visitor attraction as well. We can't always say yes to every request but we can offer an alternative. We can improvise. So somebody wants this X, if we know they can't have it, if we just say, oh, I want this. No, you can't have it. Bad visitor experience. But if I go, oh, wow, it's great you want that. However, I've got Y, and I think you're really going to like this. Then, you know, we've driven the action forward. So, yeah. I love this. Just going back to what you were talking about with McCallum right at the beginning, where you talked about Lindsay and her story. Um, 
obviously she has a personal connection to the site that was her grandfather's uh, hip flask she could talk about it very emotively but Kat, how easy is it to train someone to be a good storyteller I mean, everybody, I, I get, you know, with, within, within reason and, you know, physical and co- cognitive uh, abilities can uh, improve their storytelling, certainly. Um, and, and, and in the vast majority of cases, virtually everybody I meet and work with is a good storyteller. They are just often not confident at storytelling so can't necessarily do it in a public environment but you guarantee that when they are at home with their buddy or their family member they've been telling stories for years in the vast majority of cases there are of course exceptions to to, to every rule um but often it's um it's it's a fear of presenting or public speaking or interacting with people. There there was a um, study in the Washington Post, um, it was a year or two ago, of the most common fears in in the United States. And and the the third most common fear was snakes. The uh, second most common fear was heights. And the number one most common fear in the United States of America was public speaking. It's and and you know it. There will be a correlation with with, with the, the the UK as well there. So I often tell people who aren't confident public speakers that you know that's pretty much the most normal thing to, to be. You know, if the, the most number one co- com- common fear. So that's often in terms of you know delivering a briefing to a team of staff or you know delivering a pitch to a board or conference speaking or something like that often lots of people have reticence to do that but storytelling in the environments of of a visitor attraction is the same this is public speaking and having the confidence to approach a family next to a work of art who who are looking slightly confused and, and tell them the history of that takes confidence so to become a good storyteller, there's there's lots of tips and tricks. And, you know, as when you go to drama school and when you become an actor in the rehearsal room, you learn lots of nuances of body, breath and voice. And that's great. Absolutely. And that takes you to a higher level of technical ability in storytelling. But by far and above, the most important thing is gaining experience more than the technique. And it's gaining experience so that you become confident. And what I say is, you know, experience leads to confidence and confidence leads to good practice. It's not about being a confident person. The most confident person in the world, if you give them a task that they're inexperienced at, they may confidently give it a go, but they'll, they'll, they'll fail at it. So if it's whatever it is, whether it's public speaking, whether it's small interactions with a visitor or you know whether it's you know whatever whatever it is whatever task it is you need to build experience and that takes time so you you just have to apply yourself to the task and repeat it and repeat it until there's a point that oh I've built confidence because of the experience I have once I'm confident at the task then that's when you start adding a bit of vocal technique or body language more interaction, more humour, because you're now at a confident place where you can play around with it and get to that point of good practice. And then then that's fun. 
that's fun. It takes a while to get there, but being at a place of good practice is joyful. And it, it's not just storytelling and public speaking. You, we all do it in, in, in our jobs. You, you know, a new job takes a while. You know, if a new job on a till, you, you know, you don't know where, how, how it works or the buttons. And you might be learned quite quickly, but you're inexperienced for a while until, oh, I'm confident at it. Now I can run what I can run the products through the till without whilst having a conversation with the visitor for a while. I'm having to look at the till and do this, and I can't. Once I'm on the till at the place of good practice, I'm now asking that person how their day is and what did they say? Noticing the kid, did you see? Did you see the giraffe? Oh, it's great. He's called Henry. So I'm now adding to the experience, but because I'm at a place of good practice with storytelling that place of good practice allows you to adapt and change for your audience if you're having to think about your content and your technique you're not fully in the moment and connected to your words if you've got to a place of good practice where i can deliver this animal talk i can deliver this membership pitch i can deliver this whatever it is almost without because I've done it so many times I now don't need to really think about it like a person on the till I can be live present in the moment and listen and react so because I'm not having to think about it I notice that I start losing the attention of somebody who I'm presenting to and if I notice that I can probably get their attention back by changing the pitch of my voice or the volume or or changing or or becoming very serious if I'm being jovial or becoming very jovial if I'm being serious Uh, a juxtaposition or a change brings the attention back or if I'm engaged in sales and I'm and I'm really confident what I'm delivering I'll start noticing the bits of the pitch where there's a little flicker in the eye and I go okay they're interested in that benefit so I'll talk more about that benefit because if I'm not live in the moment I'm just you know listing benefits and not really noticing what's good for them or, or, or not good for them so, yeah, so to improve um, storytelling techniques, first and foremost, it's just building experience. And you do it, do it in safe environments, you know, do it with your friends, do it with your family, do it, do it at work. But you have to step out of your comfort zone a bit. You have to push yourself forward to, to learn. And we can all become good story, better storytellers. I, I mean, I do it for a job and I have done for, for, for a long time, but... I certainly am not the best in the world, you know, and I'm certainly not the best that I can be. And I certainly hope that, you know, I may have been doing it for 20 years, but I certainly hope in 20 more years, I will be as much better then as I was from where I am now to 20 years ago. It's a constant journey. It's a constant development. And to develop, you need to just push yourself a bit further to the point where it, I am now a bit inexperienced and then do it and do it and do it until oh, now I'm confident and now I've grown and I'm better. And, and that's can- where the magic happens. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, absolutely excellent tips today that I'm sure all of our listeners are going to love. And um, just before we wrap up, I really want to ask you, how would an attraction recognise that they needed to get in touch with you? you know, what's the what's the pain points for them? We've talked a lot about kind of donations side and driving membership what what's that kind of trigger where they where they would need to think about calling you guys in so our core products are training and scarfing uh some some organizations we do one of those things some we do some we do both so the training is we come in and deliver storytelling workshops visitor experience workshops or sales workshops 
for the in-house teams to build their confidence, build their experience at those tasks. Um, or then the start, the staffing is where we simply come in and do it with, with, with our own people. Often we do both. I, I love combining the two on a project where if somebody wants to increase commerciality and wants their team to improve on it, for us to be the best we can be in the workshop, we need to experience it first. So before a training workshop, we'll often come in and do some benchmarking where somebody, you know, somebody get in touch, they say, we want our, whoever it is, this department to sell more memberships. We go, great. Can we come for a week and sell your memberships? Uh, then we'll come, we'll you know, mystery shop it, look at everything, see if we recommend making a few tweaks in the stagecraft. Then we'll put some of our actors in uniforms in position for, for you know, you know, a week or two and sell the memberships because then we can say, okay, definitively, we know on a Saturday you should be targeting X memberships. On a rainy Tuesday, you should be targeting Y, and it's achievable because we've just done it. And whilst we were doing it, we noticed that this little phrase or this benefit in the offer, that, that was the tipping point for so many people. So then we can, in the training room where we are training their staff then, and it'll, there'll be lots of similar, we'll, we'll be using body language, vocal techniques, and get, gaining their confidence to, to in, interact and, and interact more, more, more with visitors. But if we can then put in specific lines, specific little bits of script that that this little group of words had a great effect for anyone with kids. Oh, the the retired couples mentioned the, and then that, that that's really useful for for them because we're also, we are, we like scripts. We don't like anybody ever appearing to be delivering a script. Because that is that is like the worst, the worst type. It's not the worst. Type. It's an awful type of visitor experience where, and we've all experienced where you talk to someone and you know they're just saying something that they've been told to say and they've said it a thousand times today. And you see, it's I use the analogy often of a good actor and a bad actor. Um, we've all seen both probably, and you know the bad actor often appears to to, to to be not proficient at their work because they're not in the moment they're not connected to it because they're thinking about the words they're saying next or thinking about the action in the performance that's about to happen so suddenly the tone of voice goes a little monotone their eyes may come up because I'm not actually thinking about these words I'm thinking that I need to go open that door because there's another character coming, and you see them come out whereas the actor who is the good actor can be delivering Shakespeare, 500-year-old words that have been said millions of times, but we've hopefully all seen um, Shakespeare where it genuinely appears like these words have been said for the first time, and it's emotive and beautiful and powerful. And we know they're not, but because the actor's living and breathing uh, that, that character, they're fully in the moment, whereas we want that in a visitor attraction. You know, we want that there will be a most likely route to commerciality, whether it's an exhibition ticket, a membership, um, say a visitor donation, if it's uh, and and then that will change for different audience groups. But OK, you see the family most likely benefits that appeal to them. 
you see, you, you know, the overseas visitor, most likely script that appeals, appeals to them. So we want the team to know those, have learnt them. We don't want to turn a team into robots saying mm. the same things, but we want them to be at that point of good practice where they're live in the moment, interacting, you know, having fun, but then there's the moment and suddenly they say something scripted like, you must come to the Botanic Gardens in the fall. It's my favourite time of year. And with the membership, you can come back then too. So it's just suddenly like a scripted line. It doesn't seem like it's scripted, but actually they've said it a lot. But because they've said it so many times and they've seen the benefit that, oh yeah, mention autumn or mention snowfall at Christmas. Say something emotive that puts the person uh, that you use storytelling to put the person you're selling to in the story. You must come back in February. It's orchid season. And you can walk through the glass houses and see these flowers in blue. And suddenly that person, because you've said you must come back and you're using descriptive language, sees themselves walking through orchids in February. And suddenly their propensity to buy a membership goes up because it's not February and they want to come back and they can take the price of their ticket off the metro. So, but that's, it's to absolutely improvise every single time for the visitor in front of you is a, you know, difficult task. You know, orchids, that's probably going to work at Kew Gardens because it's a great thing. You know, jousting, that's going to work at Historic Environment Scotland, you know, for it was jousting weekend last last weekend. So we've been telling people about that. That was at Linlithgow Castle, but we're telling people about it at Stirling Castle and Edinburgh Castle because they're there by the membership. You can go see the jousting. Imagine being there and seeing wow. And suddenly you put someone in a story and then they want to that their propensity to, to buy whatever the product is. Um, yeah. Oh, you're good. You're good. I want to go jousting. I want to walk through the orchids. I want to be there in fall. Well, that's the that's the story, isn't it? That's the that's the power of the story. Excellent. All right. Um, we're coming to the end of the podcast. I always ask our guests to recommend a book that they love to our listeners. Something, it might be something professional, it might be something personal. What have you got for us today? Cool. Okay, I've, I've, I've got I've got a couple with an admission as well, which uh, is a sad, sad truth about myself, who I used to be an avid reader and, and used to read lots, lots of books. And I started my business 10 years ago and had two more children during that time as well. And and for, I guess, the past sort of eight years or so, I've become somebody who starts books and then never finishes them. Mm. Because and, and and I I never and you know George, one of the, the key guys I, I work with, George, George McLean, always says, you know if you talk about tiredness it just becomes it becomes a competition oh i'm really tired today oh yeah i'm really tired oh yeah my kid woke me up at 5 a.m yeah my kid was up at 2 a.m and it's just this and the more you talk about tiredness, the more tired you become but the reality is you know running a business having kids i've been exhausted for the last decade try and read a book and just fall asleep however i I do i I do occasionally manage one so there was a great book I, I read recently and actually did manage, manage to finish called Get in Trouble by um, Kelly Link. They're short stories. I mean, maybe they're novelettes. They're, they're sort of lengthy. They're, they're relative. They're sort of 100 page um, stories as opposed to, to, to full novels and in a sort of 
exciting, surreal sci-fi um, type environment, which, which I, I very much enjoyed. Uh, and I've, and I've, I've got, bought a new book this week, which I haven't read. So it could be awful. Oh, it could be good. Uh, Who knows? Be. And it's more, more connected to, to um, visitor attraction industry. So there, there's a guy called Nick Gray um, who had a company called Museum Hack. Uh, I met him at a conference, um, the Blue Loop conference in Liverpool a number of years ago. Great guy. Museum Hack was an awesome. So it still exists, but he sold it. Um but yeah, so Museum Hack is an awesome company who, who does primarily in, in America tours in museums, but focusing on like sex, death, value. So focusing on sort of the idea everybody really wants to know how much that's worth, <laughs> you know, and and then things like people only have an attention span of a certain amount of time. So, and I mean, a lot of people I'd imagine will hate the sound of, of this, but you know, it ticks boxes for me and they get rave reviews. So they'll be delivering the tour in the Met or wherever for a while. And then after half an hour, they'll stop and all do a little bit of yoga because it then reconnects you and your attention span can come back. And then these super, so super fun companies, super, super fun uh, tours, great, great guy, re- re- really interesting. And yes, yeah, so, so I met him there. We linked on, I, I don't really know, but you know, we linked on LinkedIn and occasionally like each other's posts and things like that. But he's just released a book called um, The Two Hour Cocktail Party, which has just come out. Ah, um, I saw this. I yeah. saw this. I didn't know it was him. This yeah. looks great. So I haven't read it, but I do know quite a lot about it because he's been talking about this for, for several years. And so he hosts cocktail parties. So he was in New York for a long time. He's uh, now been sort of, sort of, sort of moving around. And I think, I think he lives in Austin now. Um, but but yeah, so he used cocktail parties as ways to meet people some and sometimes for, for business purposes, but also just to like make 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 new mates in a in a new town or 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 a city. And so it's it's a sort of easy to follow manual of how to produce sort of a simple, effective cocktail party, which oh, is wow. a simple, lo- lo- lovely idea. So I, I put it this week, but I'm, I, I'm looking forward to reading at least the first few chapters <laughs> before then I fall asleep and it gets put, put, put on. All there. right. Well, look, listeners, it, it, as ever, you can win these books. So if you go over to our Twitter account and you retweet this episode announcement with the words, I want Bala's book, uh, you could be in with a chance of winning that. I am going to buy this book. And then what we can do is have a competition about who's read the least of it because they're the tiredest. And then we can have a cocktail party, which is much more fun than... <laughs> <laughs> in real life without any technology exactly that's perfect player. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast today Bala it's been lovely to talk to you thank you for all of the tips that you've shared um, we will put all of Bala's contact details in the show notes so um, if you need some sales training or if you need some uh, help with your visitor experience you will know exactly where to go thanks for joining us thanks a lot take care thanks for listening to skip the queue If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. 
You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.